Thanks, Thea. Hey, I'm Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at EV. Hey, cool to hear about some of the stuff going on in church life, and particularly Recharge. I heard some uh, rumors slash complaints that it was too early in the morning on a Saturday for the, for the guys, but we moved it to nighttime, so uh, no excuse now, Unichurch guys. Uh, but for real, though, the Recharge and Refresh men's and women's events that we do, one of the main reasons we do them is so that you guys can meet older men and women who have walked with Jesus for a longer time in their lives and have some wisdom, get to know them and and start forming friendships with them and invite them to be uh, speaking into your lives. So that's one of the main reasons we do it. Uh, We recognize that actually there's such a great benefit to learning from those that have a little bit more wisdom and life than us. Um, But yeah, so recharge, refresh, make sure you get along to the next one. Well, we live in a world, don't we, that is designed to make us discontent. I don't know if you agree or disagree with that, but I think that statement is true. Let me unpack it a little bit more. I was reading a Harvard Business uh, Review article on the largest longitudinal study on satisfaction and advertising that's ever been done. Okay, so Andrew Oswald, University of Warwick, 900,000 people were part of this study, and it was done across 30 years, so the 1980s through the 2011. And basically what they did was they interviewed people across, across 27 European countries, asking them, uh, how much does your country spend on advertising and how satisfied or content are the people in your country? And what they found as they did this study was there is a directly inverse relationship. So the more a country spends on advertisement, the less satisfied and content people in that country are. Okay, so here's the conclusive evidence. Advertising makes you discontent, dissatisfied, and it leads to lower levels of happiness. I mean, think about it in your own life. You're perfectly content, and then you see an ad for something. For me, it's stuff like, you know, Timu. Do we have any Timu fans in the house? Yeah, let's go, Timu. Um, You see this ad for this thing that you didn't even know that you want, and after you see the ad, you're like, oh, my life would be better without that thing. Or with that thing, sorry. It, it's, it's actually bad without that thing, and now I need that thing, and I'm thinking about that thing, and I'm discontent, and, you know, the cycle. So what happens is advertisers, um, their goal is to sell your product, and the way that they do it is by showing you that your life is less good than it could be, presenting the solution that will make your dreams come true, and then selling it to you, okay? And so what we end up is in this cycle of... Um, we get promised that the thing we buy will lead to satisfaction. We buy it, it might be good for a week or two, but it doesn't actually lead to the lasting satisfaction and contentment that we want, and so we then go and buy something else. It's this kind of ongoing satisfaction cycle in our lives. Now, this is a huge bummer for us that advertising leads to discontentment because we are surrounded by advertising, aren't we? TV, radio, social media, you're speaking about something with a friend and the next thing that ad for that very thing pops up on your newsfeed and it's like a bit creepy and you're like, oh, maybe I do want to buy that. Like, does that happen to you guys? Like, advertising is everywhere. Now, is it possible, given that advertising leads to discontentment, that we could be content? Is that actually possible today or should we just give it up and just suffer the consequences? I think today's passage shows us that it is possible to have true contentment even in an ad-saturated world. So here's the big idea. I've put it in a kind of a formula. Engineers are going to love this one. Uh, (laughs) Contentment leads to and is fueled by godliness and generosity. And if you have that, you've got what Paul describes in this passage as truly life. You are living life the way that God intended you to. But put it on the flip side, 
and you have discontentment, which is driven by and fueled by idolatry and arrogance. And if you have that, Paul says what you have is not life. It's the opposite of true life. It's false life, fake life, life lived not the way that God intended you to. And so my goal in the next half an hour is to help us see what God's word says to chase contentment. And I want to try and work hard to help you see that your money is not as good as you think it is. Now, a bit of an uphill battle. We all kind of love money, don't we? But (laughs) that's where we're going to go tonight. And so why don't we pray that God would help us to do that. So let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Uh, Thank you that even though it sounds counterintuitive, we pray tonight that you would help us to see that contentment flows not from having more stuff, but from knowing you. We pray that you would help us to fight against the discontentment that is everywhere in our lives, that is fueled by an ad-saturated, commercially driven world, and you would point us back to King Jesus. We need your help to do that. We need our hearts to be changed, and we need your spirit at work in us to produce this fruit of contentment tonight. So we pray that you'd work here. Amen. Okay, first point in your outlines there, false teachers and false promises. So 1 Timothy, the key thing that we've seen throughout the letter so far, if you've been coming along and been working through this letter, is that the church is to be the pillar and foundation of the truth, to be a shining light in a world of darkness, hope in the midst of a world where things feel hopeless. And and Paul says to start off the letter back in chapter 1 verse 5, he says this, he says, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Okay, so what we see here is that truth and love go together. If you're trying to love someone, you will speak the truth to them. And if you are trying to build them up, the truth is actually required. See, saying things that are false, that aren't true, doesn't actually build someone up. And what we see in today's passage is the opposite. If truth builds up, then falsehood actually is divisive and it tears down. See, pick it up with me in chapter 6, verse 3. We're going to kind of work through the passage tonight, so have a Bible open and share with the person next to you if you don't have one. Verse 3. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. Okay, tell us what you really think, Paul. Like, he doesn't hold back here, does he? See, it's interesting, uh, when we come to the words of Jesus, he says he's the way, the truth, and the life. And, and so what we see here is that actually all teaching in the Bible, in particularly the New Testament, it sits in accord with the teaching of Jesus. So to teach truth is to teach what Jesus taught. If you go against Jesus, you're no longer teaching truth. Okay? And Paul doesn't hold back here because he says these guys are not teaching in line with Jesus. And this reality wasn't just true back then. It's true today. There are people that teach things that aren't in accord with what Jesus actually taught. Okay, we see three things here. What are the marks of false teaching? That's the first one. It doesn't agree with what Jesus actually says. And the second thing, did you notice there in those verses? Keep up on the screen. Um, We'll keep going through it. It, It's teaching that doesn't promote godliness. It actually does the opposite, we'll see. It actually leads to people acting in ways that aren't godly, that actually are tearing down, that are divisive, that are quarreling, that are arguing, envious. Rather than helping people live God's way, it actually pushes and forces people away from God. 
and it's not just kind of one-off incidences. This is driven by the character or the heart of the people that are doing this. Do you see what the, the verses say there? They're conceited. They think they know more about God than others, and yet they've got it so wrong, haven't they? They're conceited, they're proud, they're not willing to listen to others. And because of that, they've become divisive. Do you see there? It's divisive. It causes quarreling, this kind of teaching. It causes um, people to, to slander, to uh, turn against each other. They care about winning arguments that don't even matter more than about the people that they're talking to. Do you know people like that? I don't know if you've ever met someone like They're very unpleasant to be around, the kind of person that cares more about just arguments and fighting and quarreling over little things and causes fractions and divisions in the church. And the worst thing about it is that they think the gospel and the Christian faith is all about them. They think it's all about what they can get and all about their material gain in this world. You see it there in verse 5. They think that godliness is going to lead to material gain. Okay? Now, I think as a whole, as a church, we need to be on guard against this kind of teaching. There are teachers and churches and pastors out there that will tell you if you just pray more, have a bit more faith, and give more to your church, that things will go well for you. That you'll be blessed by God, you'll get all this money and wealth and other things like that. There are pastors out there who are doing that, who are saying God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. And it is not true. It is not what God ever promises. He doesn't promise you that your life's going to be easy and good and full of wealth and you have all the things your heart ever dreams of and desires. No. In, in fact, it's actually the very worst thing they're doing is that all these promises that are future promises for eternity and glory with God, they're trying to give you a little taste of them now, but in doing so, they take the focus off the real deal. Life with Jesus forever in heaven. Wow. Now, now what a cheap substitute is material wealth in this world. See, this is part of the reason why we talked about this last week. All the pastors here at church uh, have salaries which are set and capped and they don't change and you can go and um, ask me more about that later. Um, but there is nothing worse than greedy pastors or greedy churches that just want people's money to kind of line their own pockets with. That just brings so much shame and disrepute to the name of Jesus, doesn't it? But this isn't just a word for pastors. See, I think all of us all of us have this kind of bit of danger in our hearts. We might not fall for kind of overt prosperity kind of teaching or, or that kind of stuff. But are you ever tempted to think that God owes you something? Are you ever tempted to think that, oh, surely God wants me to have this thing. Of course he wants to bless me, me to have this great thing. Do you, ever, do you ever think about your life that way? Of course God wants me to have that house or that car or that lifestyle, or that holiday or whatever it is for you. Of course he wants to bless me. <laughs> so here's the deal. I think this is such a danger for us because our hearts are just kind of focused on ourselves. We'll talk about this a bit more later, but we just we are focused in on ourselves, and so we always have this danger to make it about us. And, and the problem is that uh, we live surrounded by people who are just like us. Do you know, if you're in New Zealand, you are in the top 15% of wealthy people in the world. But what do you compare yourself to? I don't know about you, but I don't compare myself to like the top 1% billionaires. I'm not sitting here like jealous because I don't own a private jet, you know? Like, I mean, sure, a private jet would be nice, but like, it, does, it doesn't like, doesn't get me. But what gets me is like my neighbor or my, my friend or someone that I know who's similar to me in kind of lifestyle or age or has kind of similar income. 
and they've got like a bit nicer car, or they went on a holiday overseas. Or it's the people who are like us who we compare ourselves to. See, that's not talking about the 75% of the world who are way poorer than us. Okay, like we, we don't sit here and go, oh, I, I'm not comparing myself to someone that lives in Nigeria on like a dollar a week kind of income, right? We're not, we, don't, we don't say, oh, I'm so, I've got so much. And we just don't do that. We compare ourselves to people who are like us. And we live in a city full of people who don't know and love God and who have made an idol of the things of this world. The experiences, money, income, security, job, career, those things have become their functional God. And as we compare ourselves to them, we're just as likely to kind of fall into that trap of idolizing those same things. See, we're in danger and we don't even realize it. And so what do we do to avoid that danger? Well, second point in your outline, we need to remember and remind each other that contentment is gain. That the good stuff in life is not found by being able to purchase it with your credit card. That contentment actually will be far better for me than a life fueled by money. Okay, pick it up with me in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. So here's the basic idea, right? Why is contentment gain? Because you brought nothing into the world and so you can take nothing out, right? Your bank account when you started as a baby is going to be the same that you have after you die. Nothing. You don't get to take any of it with you. It's just the reality of the world. I think of all the people groups throughout history, who's got this the most wrong? It's probably the Egyptians, right? Huge pyramids, rooms full of stuff, the afterlife. They just completely didn't get it. That like You can't take anything with you. And we need to remember that. It's so easy to try and kind of build up and and try and hold on to things and and focus on them here and now. But you can't take any of it with you when you die. There's this joke uh, about a man who kind of, he lives a, a miserly life. He scrimps and he saves and he's cheap and he never pays anyone what they're supposed to pay and just goes through life with just this awful attitude trying to like get just hold on to stuff that's his and he kind of this is a joke right okay he comes to you gotta laugh and say the punchline <laughs> that wasn't punchline he, he comes to uh, the gates of heaven he sees St. Peter there and he says hey, I've been saving and scrimping my whole life and I've got this kind of bar of gold this block of gold and I'm so excited to bring it with me to heaven and he gets there and St. Peter says oh great some more cobblestones for the road just like, kind of chuck it on the pile right you see we can't take it with us but even if we could even if we could heaven and eternity with God is going to be so much more glorious than anything in our wildest dreams. Why would you bother focusing on it and living now for those kind of things? You can't even take it with you. But even if you could, it doesn't even compare to how good eternity with God will be. Do you get the idea? You can't take it with you. And and because of that, do you see the other thing here that ties in with contentment is that the bar is lower than we think. If I was to say to you, what would make you have a content life? What would you say? If you're anything like me, your list would probably be a little bit longer than Paul's list here, food and clothing. It might include a few other things, you know, a place to live, a job, a, you know, a good relationships, those kind of things. Uh, but do you see here, I, I think the trap that we fall into is thinking that some of our wants are actually needs. 
And, and it should make you pause and reflect on your life right now. What are the things that you feel owed by God or the things that you go, these are basic necessities in my life? Are they actually needs? Are they things that I need and if I don't have them, I can't be content? I think for lots of things in the world, the answer is no. This might actually just be a want. Okay, next time you feel envy or discontentment creeping in, ask yourself, did I eat today? Do I have some clothes to wear, a place to stay? Am I loved by the God of the universe and I'm his child and he's given me every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus? If I've got those things, I've got enough to move towards contentment. Yeah? I think we need to challenge ourselves and our world is full of um, the idea that kind of wants and desires have become needs and if I see it online, I've just got to buy it straight away and I can't, I can't hold back. We've got to challenge that kind of consumer attitude that we have. Can I say, though, if you are here tonight and you are struggling financially and you don't have enough for those kind of basic necessities, come and talk to us. Well, as a church, part of the money that we get um, donated and, and, and given in partnership from all of us, we put it aside in an emergency fund. And if that is you and you're struggling to get those basic necessities, come and talk to us. We'd love to support you. We're not a church that just talks the talk. We're actually a family. We want to care for each other and support each other through tough times. And so um, we'd love to do that for you if that is you here tonight. Contentment is gain because we can't take anything with us. And because discontentment is such a trap. See there in verse 9? Those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. See, those who are never content, who always want that bit more, that next thing, that new product, whatever it is, that is such a temptation and trap, Paul says. It's a temptation that will ruin you. Why? Why will it ruin you? Well, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. See, this might be one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. It's not saying that money itself is the root of all evil. It's the love of money, isn't it? It's actually loving money, wanting more of it, focusing on it, obsessing over it, and dwelling on it. Okay, You could be rich or poor, have plenty or nothing, and either way, you could have a love of money. I know some really rich people who are profoundly generous. They hold on to their money loosely and they give it away to great stuff all the time and they don't love money even though they're rich. And conversely, I know some people who are very poor but yet they can't stop obsessing over money. See, we're talking here about the heart attitude, not necessarily just the amount of money that you have. So I think I want to spend some time unpacking this together. What is it? that makes loving money so bad? What is it that makes loving money here lead to evil? Okay, what is it that sets it up as a temptation and a trap in our lives? See, I think it's because, I think what we're getting at here is that money starts to function in your life like God. It functions as the thing in your life that you turn to to save you. Okay, it's the thing that you put your hope and your trust in. See, we love what money gives us. I don't think many of us would say, oh, I just love money. I'm just so into money. You know, I'm Scrooge McDuck diving into my money pool and just kind of swimming around in my money. I don't, I mean, so, sure, we like money, right? Like, no one's going to say no to money. But we're not, I think it's more what money gives us 
is where we start to see how it kind of functions in our lives as God. See, what does money give you? Is it the power? The power to make choices and have autonomy in your life. Maybe it's privilege. Maybe it's protection and security. And if I just had that bit more money, I'll feel so much more safe. I'll have my rainy day fund set up and ready to go. Maybe it's significance. With money, I could get into these places and have these connections or these relationships or uh, be looked up on by others. Might be the lifestyle that money can give you, the, the holidays, the food, the kind of, is it the lifestyle for you? See, what is it? What is it for you? It's, it's not going to be that you just love money, but it will be that you love something that money will bring. And that thing will be a temptation and a trap, and it will become your functional savior in your life. And you will turn to it for hope and security. Okay, we don't do this consciously even often. I think this is a subconscious thing that's going on. We put this thing in the place where God is supposed to be in our lives. And so what does money do? We, as, we, as we kind of put money in that place of God, this is called idolatry, putting something in the place of God. What does it do in our lives is it, it becomes the functional savior and it actually curves our affections inward, okay? It makes us more concerned with ourselves and the things that money can bring us. And, and, and in doing so, it takes our eyes off God and off the world that he's given us and the people around us that we're to love. Okay, so money curves our hearts inwards and makes it all about me. And, and, and what does that do? It actually, the, the longer you live like that, the more money you have, the more this will happen. You'll turn to money, you'll find your satisfaction in money, your security in money, your hope in money, whatever it is for you, and it will continually push other things to the periphery. You'll start to view other people as what you can get out of them. And God, he just kind of will move to the edge of your life. You might still have a trust in Jesus, but God's not necessary anymore, is he? Because money's your God. The things that money gives you have become your functional God. And, and Paul says, if you continue in that lifestyle, you will drift away from God until the point where you will think that God's not even necessary in your life. And that is the tragic trap of money. Okay, this is why Jesus speaks so much about money in the Gospels. Now get this, right? This is the king of the universe, the God of all who created all things, who made it all in a moment. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need that, you know, that little bit of money in your bank account. What do you, who do you think you are? Like, he doesn't need my money. He doesn't need your money. What, why does Jesus talk so much about money? Why is it? It's because Jesus cares about our hearts. He sees this trap that money can have. And so he continually reminds us that Matthew 6, we cannot serve both God and money. You will love one and despise the other. He continually puts before us to, to turn away from money and having it as the function of God in your life and turn to the real God, the one who can save you, who is the one to put your hope in. That's why he keeps talking about money. It's why we are happy to talk about it as a church. So what is it for you? What is it for you, that thing in your life that money could bring you? That if I just had X, then I'd be content. Now take a moment, think about it. What is it for you? There's your trap. There's your temptation. Whatever that is, that thing that just popped into your mind. Like for me, uh, if I just had a bit more money, uh, this week I was looking at motorbikes. <laughs> I'd love to buy a motorbike. It's a bit silly, but it'd give me some freedom, some autonomy. It'd be super fun. I'd look pretty cool. Like, 
That's, that, that's just something that popped into my head this week. Because I was, if I had a couple of grand, what would I spend it on? What is it for you? That's your trap. If I just had enough to provide for my family or to, to eat out without worrying about my budget or enough to put down a mortgage so I could own a property and so I could be safe and secure and no one could ever kick me out because it's my own house. What is it for you? Let me touch on the house one in a little bit more detail. Don't fall into the trap as young people who are thinking about getting a mortgage to do the thing that is so easy to do, which is to have your eyes drive your mortgage. Okay, what happens is you, you get a young couple, you get married, you, or you're single, you want to buy a house, and you go, hey, I'm, I'm going to go to the bank and see what they'll loan me. And they give you the absolute max amount that the bank's going to loan you, and you think, oh, great, that's how much money I have to spend. And you go and get a house that's exactly that much, and it's right on the margin, right? And it doesn't account for any factors that might change in your life, like job change, lifestyle change, you might have kids, you might get sick, and it just pushes you right to the very edge and you end up with this mortgage that is far more than you should have got because that's what the bank said you could get. But what's the bank? The bank's just trying to make money off you. They don't care about you. Don't over-mortgage yourself and put yourself in a position where you're too tired to go to stuff during the week with other Christians and be part of the community here. Don't buy the lie. Be content with less, not more. See, contentment is gain because you can't take anything with you and because loving money is just a trap. It won't lead to the security and the hope that you think it will. And this leads us on to our third point. See, what is it that's better than riches? What is it that's better than money, better than the, the things that money can give you, whatever that thing that popped into your head earlier was? It's the hope of knowing God. Right? It's hope. Far better than riches. See verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. See, how does, how does money work? Here's another way it works. It makes you arrogant. It lulls you into this kind of false sense of security. Oh yeah, I've got some money, I'll be okay. Well, have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought, oh yeah, I've got some, some money, I'm in control in my life? And I think, in a way, this is true. Money gives you choices, it gives you power, it gives you the ability to kind of do things. But it's not ultimately true, is it? See, money is actually far less trustworthy and far less stable than we think. When you get that medical diagnosis, your bank account no longer matters. When your closest relationships crash and burn and fall apart. Uh, when, you know, the stock market, if you've got stocks, the stock market could crash and the money that you thought was stable and kind of long-term investment, it just could disappear. Or we saw earlier with the floods this year, didn't we? In a second, the house that you own is just gone overnight. Money doesn't actually bring the security that we think it does. Far better to trust a God who will never let you down. A God who sent his son to die for you, who loves you, who has secured you if you will turn and put your trust in him. Repent of your sin and come back to him. See, if you're here tonight and you're exploring Christianity, this is what you need to hear. That it's not just don't put your trust in money because it's not secure. Trust God. He has secured your eternity. You are a child of his if you come to Jesus and throw yourself on his mercy. Come to him, accept his offer of grace. To know that he loves you and he will never let you go is the greatest foundation for security and peace and joy and life in your, that you could ever have. Money doesn't even come close to touching what you can get 
from God. In the darkest situations in your life, in the low, in the valley, you have God. The God of the universe loves you and calls you his child. That's what's on offer for us today if we'll see it with clear eyes. Now from that place, if I have that relationship with God, if you don't have it, come and speak to me. Speak to someone who brought you. We want you to have it. But if you've got it, from that place, I can enjoy the good things of this world without idolizing them. I can hold on to them loosely, willing to give them up, be generous with them. I can do all of that because I know God. See, Christian contentment is not about just not wanting anything, okay? The, the getting rid of all desire, that's not Christianity. Do you know what that is? That's Buddhism. Buddhism says get rid of all your desires and so you can detach from the world and so then you can reach this state of nirvana. Okay, that's Buddhism. Christian contentment doesn't flow from a lack of desire, but it flows from a right desire. From desiring not just the good gifts, but the giver. The relationship with the Father who made you and loves you and wants you to come and enjoy life with Him. See, contentment flows from knowing God, from loving Him, from understanding what He's done in your life. And if you truly get that, if you live that way, then verse 18 will not actually be that hard. See, what does Paul say? In light of this reality, instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share. See, that sounds pretty hard, right? Rich in good works, generous, willing to share. It's a lot of giving of myself, of my money, of my things. But if you know the God of the universe, if you're secure and safe with him, that will become easier. I'm not saying it's going to be completely easy to give away stuff all the time, but it will become easier and more natural to you to respond to God's generosity by being generous to others. Let me just think about applying this to us as a church. Okay, we've, The last couple of weeks we've been talking a bit about money. Last week we saw Don't Muzzle the Ox, our responsibility to partner with the pastors of this church. This week we see here the trap of money and the, the call here to give generously, give it away. That's, so it doesn't trap us, it doesn't hold us and, and, and lead us to ruin. Okay, we don't talk much about money. If you've only come the last two weeks, I promise you we're not a church that's just out to get your money. We're just working through God's word, and this is what's come up last week and this week. Uh, we deliberately haven't talked about our budget at all this whole term, because we knew, hey, it's going to come up here from God's word in 1 Timothy 6. So, Given that that's the reality, we've got a responsibility to our local church. Contentment leads to generosity and godliness, and that is true life, and that we live for the age to come, eternity, not for this world here and now. Given that those are true, I want to just highlight three things for us as a church as we think about our finances and our budget. Okay, if you are visiting here, welcome to the kind of the family meeting. You can just listen in, but we're not, I'm not really talking to you, but I love that you're here. Um, okay, all right, here's the first one. Our church is full of Christians who love partnering and being generous with the kingdom work that God is doing among us. Okay, I'll, I'll pull up a slide in a second. We don't need it right yet. But here's the deal. Lots of us here at EV are giving generously. In fact, last month in August, we gave $100,000 towards our new North building. Isn't that amazing? Like, isn't that so cool what God's doing in and through us as a church that we're looking at uh, money and what we've got and how we can be generous towards God and towards kingdom work in the world? I just hear that and it kind of blows me away. And it's not like some big donor in the UK. This is us. This is us, individuals who are thinking about how we can use the money that God's given us as stewards. It just blows me away when I think about it. 
That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. As we grow as a church, a real danger becomes for each of us that every individual thinks that their financial partnership doesn't matter. Okay, we, we, this, is, this is how kind of churches that grow, it just happens over time. When you've got like, you know, eight people gathering in a living room, that's how Evie started in the living room. If someone stops giving, you're like, oh, there's a quarter of our church budget just go like gone, right? Like, we notice it, but as church continues to grow, you start to wonder, don't you? Oh, does my little bit that I can offer actually make a difference? Does it even matter? And, and what we've seen today is that it does matter primarily because of your heart. Jesus says, be generous and, and love me, not money. But as we continue to grow, we need to remember that we are a member-funded church. Okay? There's no big orgs that are backing EV Church. It's just us here at Uni Church, our morning campuses, thinking about our budgets and giving generously to the work of the kingdom. Okay? Uh, can we have a look at this slide? I just want to show you this just briefly. Okay? Here's, here's a slide of our giving for the last kind of two years. Two years? Nearly two years. Um, over the last two years, we've had, or over the last this year, okay, nine months, we've had 120 people join us. A bunch of those are people who put their trust in Jesus for the first time, which is awesome. And also there's been some people that have kind of already Christian who have joined EV, okay? And so what I just want to highlight for us, though, is we've had 120 people join, but the number of donors, which is that bottom line, hasn't really grown much in the last kind of nine months. It's grown a little bit, not much. You can see there that the green line is kind of donations, and the blue line at the top is expenses. Now, the donations line is consistently under the expenses line. I don't want to kind of talk about that too much, but it's just worth highlighting there. But basically, what our danger is, is because we think that it's not my individual donation doesn't matter as much, our danger is to, to think, oh, I'm just going to kind of do my own thing, and other people can give. But what I want to encourage us today is that we've seen the call to be generous and to partner with our local church. And can I encourage you, are you in a place to give if you are a member of this church, if you do call this church home, if you are a Christian, to the work of ministry here, to the kingdom work that is going on at EV? Uh, It would be amazing to see God work in your heart to produce a generosity that leads to kingdom partnership. Okay, Don't be tempted to think that your individual kind of Financial generosity doesn't matter. Even if it's a lot or a little, all of that matters towards God, and it matters for your own heart. There's the second thing. Here's the third one. Let me just encourage you all that it is really healthy to kind of regularly consider your budget. How much am I saving? How much am I spending? How much am I investing? How much am I giving? Okay? Uh, I, I, this, this is true for a couple of reasons. The first is, you know, average uh, income went up by 6% this last year. And so that might be you, you have heaps more income. Or the other thing is that cost of living is on the rise, and so it might be you that you've been hit by that. And it's just healthy to regularly reflect on your budget and how much you are able to spend, save, and give. Okay? I, I know my instinct is, like I said earlier, when it comes to like getting a bit more money, if I had a couple extra thousand dollars, my heart just naturally goes, what could I spend that on? What could I get for me with that money? Okay? And so I think if you're anything like me, it's just this helpful, healthy practice. To, if you're a Christian, if you call this church home, it, to, to regularly keep thinking about what are you giving money to? How much? What am I spending money on? How much? What am I saving? How much? Don't, don't let your heart be trapped into thinking that your savings are security or that you, you're spending on wants, not needs. We need to kind of regularly reassess this. I think at least once a year, 
And this would be a good thing to do for next year, to kind of think, what would my budget's going to be for 2024? To be intentional about it, not just kind of walk through life, just spending whatever you've got on whatever's in front of you. If you're like me as well, and you direct debit your giving, then it just doesn't hit the same way as it kind of used to if you gave by cash. And so can I encourage you, when your direct debit comes out, if you've got that set up, spend 15 minutes. When it comes out, whatever the day is, put it on your prayer mate app. How good's prayer mate, Ryan? It's good. Put it on prayer mate to come up and spend some time praying. Praying that God would guard your heart against greed, against discontentment, against the trap of a love of money, and keep growing your conviction for kingdom work in his world. That would be a super helpful thing. So here's what we need to do as a church. Uh, I want you to go home this week and just think about applying this. Okay, we've heard over the last two weeks, God wants us to be generous with what we have and to partner with our local church. So you could go home. Here's how I'd do it. Look at your income. Look at what you're currently giving. Look at your budget. Set a budget for 2024. Now, some of you are like, set a budget. What the heck's a budget? (laughs) Uh, We've actually got some uh, resources that'll help you think about setting a budget. It's on the website. You can go to... uh, home.aucklandev.co.nz forward slash give. We've got a bunch of resources for you. If you've never set a budget before, 2024 could be the year for you. But go home, reflect on the generosity of Christ in your life, and and think about, hey, what could I spend, save, give in 2024? Uh, Jump onto the website, and you can actually fill in a pledge form for 2024 where you go, okay, here's what I'm thinking I would be able to budget in that area in my life in 2024. And that's really helpful for us as a church to kind of plan, uh, the exec team use that to plan uh, how things are going to go in the next year. So can I encourage you, go home and do that this week. Spend some time, pray about it, reflect on it. Talk with your connect group about, hey, how do you guys do budgeting? Let's, let's chat about it. And do it all because you want to see more people here at Uni Church, captivated by Jesus, grounded in the gospel, growing in number and maturity. Yeah, that's what's motivating and driving all of this. Okay, there's some, there's some financial kind of application for us as a church. I hope that wasn't too dry. Uh, I just want to finish. This is, that, that was really important, okay? This is actually something that I think we need to go. I'm going to give you, that's your homework for the week. You've had a week off with uni break. Uh, <laughs> there's your homework. Here's the deal. The more generous you are, the looser money's grip on you will be. The looser it will have a hold over your heart. You'll start to view what you have as God's dollar in your pocket. You'll see your role as a steward, given this great stuff by God, yes, to enjoy, but yes, to use for the kingdom of God, to give it away, be generous with it, to to care about your heart and about loving and serving Jesus as your master. Why? What is it ultimately that motivates Christians to give away huge percentages of their money? It's because you don't belong here. It's because this place, this world, Auckland City, is not your home. Verse 20. Says they're storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Do you see it there? This age is passing away. This life that we're living now, this world, is not going to be around for that much longer. We don't know when Jesus is going to return, but he will return as the Lord and the judge and the savior and the ruler of all. He will bring in the new creation and the new eternity, and those of us who have our trust in Jesus will enjoy life with him for forever. That's the coming age. That's the age that we're to live for. It's not for this life now. There's eternity waiting. See, what helps me when I think about the things that I have to sacrifice in order to be generous 
It's that picture, that coming age of eternity with the God of the universe who loves me in close relationship. Now, anything that I could give up now is just minute in comparison to the life to come. Yeah? True life is found living for that reality, not for this reality. See, when our family, when we moved to New Zealand, I'm I'm an Aussie, I've been here for coming up towards two years now. But we said, okay, we're going to move to New Zealand. We're excited. We're going to go and work at Auckland EV, pastor there. And we sent all our stuff ahead of us in a shipping container. Okay, we packed it all up, put it in a shipping container, sent it off, and then COVID was annoying. And so we're actually stuck for six months in Australia with no stuff, which was a little bit annoying, but uh, it's beside the point. Um, We sent our stuff off. Because the shipping of the stuff takes longer than a flight, okay? And what we did was we said, this country is no longer our home. This is not our home. And so we're going to think about our possessions and the money that we have and the belongings and the life that we have and, and make decisions with them based on our new home on the future, on, on where we were going to be. And, and it was determined not by our old country, but by our new home. See, that's each of us here this morning. You might not have ever traveled overseas and shipped stuff before, but each of us is called to live in light of our new home, to use our possessions and our money and, and everything that we have as, as Christians to live in light of that reality, to ship our stuff and, and make decisions about the future based on that. See, if your trust is in Jesus, this is not home. You know where home is, don't you? It's with Jesus. It's eternity with him. Live now for the coming age and grab hold of what is truly life. Let's pray that we do that. Father God, we are so thankful for King Jesus. We live now on the edge of an age. Jesus has died and he's risen from the dead and he is ruling and reigning over all things in heaven. And there is a day coming, Lord God, and we trust and believe it to be true that Jesus will return. He will usher in the new age, the new eternity, the new creation with him forever. And it's that vision, that hope that drives us forward now. Would you help us to fight against discontentment, fight against idolatry and arrogance? Would you help us to cast off the false life that comes from a love of money and look to Jesus? Would you, would you by the power of your word through your Holy Spirit in our lives, convict us tonight? Would you help us to fight for contentment and godliness and to live generous lives and to view our money and our stuff loosely? Would we live now for your glory as we wait for the return of Jesus and the age to come? Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.